Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Found on page 1006 of your pew Bible. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that you open our hearts and reveal to us your infinite word, God, that we might be made more whole, awaiting that great day. In your precious name we pray, amen. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who is made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent, sprinkled with blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not, only, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word of God for the people of God. There was an article that came out in uh, the Hedgehog Review, which is a great title for a journal, um, in 2017. I forget the name of the author, but he was a um, church history, uh, not church history, history professor 
at um, Hillsdale College. And um, the title of it, um, and it got kind of some discussion going, was The Strange Persistence of Guilt. The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And what he was saying was that it's, it's unusual and kind of a surprise to people that there's still a sense of guilt and moral pressure. He said that, you know, um, there was this thought that the more secular we got, uh, the less judgment, condemnation, moral pressure would be in society. That was the whole idea was uh, people were pressured by society and religious society to do things and um, that once they were free from that, or as Nietzsche said, that, you know, once God was dead, that we could just um, realize that everybody could just kind of say, hey, you do you, I'm going to do what I want to do, and we're, you know, no judgment, we're just going to um, be cool with one another. Um, and yet, we have become more and more secular. There's less and less um, influence of the church, and, and you know, you'd be hard-pressed uh, in some places to have any concept of God in public square, and yet moral pressure has probably increased rather than decreased. I mean, it's maybe not traditional, but isn't there a moral quality to what people eat, where you buy things? that we could get into a place that whether or not you ate Chick-fil-A uh, would be a moral question, um, that now many corporations have kind of moral policing and ratings in them. I mean, there, there's pressure about, um, you know, environmental impact. There's pressure about um, your, your inclusivity. All of these things, as well as, you know, um, traditional, are part of the discussion so that we, we get outrage. Um, I, it, it seems that when I turn on the news, very often the news that's reported is not actual news as much as, um, depending on which channel you're watching, how dumb and mean and evil the other is, side is because of what they're trying to do or what someone tweeted, or what they said that hurt somebody's feelings. And that's not one party or the other, that's both parties looking and saying, look how bad the other people are. And I mean, don't you feel moral pressure around you on those things? And it's in the psychological literature as well. You know, it used to be kind of the concept of we had moral pressure um, and that we have this false oppressive thing put upon us, and yet now people who have grown up with no religious training or background at all go to therapists feeling a sense of guilt, uncertain where that guilt comes from. We all feel guilt. I mean, I, we all. I mean, we, we, as I just think of my, my, myself, of I do something that I feel bad, I wish I hadn't done, how much of the next day am I running through my head justifying my actions and giving all the excuses why it wasn't as bad as I think it is? And again, that's one of those places I was looking for a lot of more nods of agreement than I got. But anyway, maybe, maybe just me, but don't we often kind of give reasons why things we did weren't as bad? Or if we see somebody else and the bad thing they did to us, how we wouldn't have done that 
where there, there is still guilt, guilt being thrown on others, um, guilt being felt, guilt, pressure everywhere. And I think the real cause of it is because in our heart of hearts, we know the truth of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We know there is a right and a wrong. We know that we are accountable, and we know that we will face some sort of judgment. This is, this is just in us. And as much as we try to uh, distract ourselves with trivia, as much as we try to make up for doing things by contributions and good works to prove that we're really good people, the truth is we know that there is one who is above us to whom we give an account. This is, this is why historically across the globe, every culture has some sense of a god or gods above them to whom they must sacrifice. Uh, the way that's been understood by different cultures varies, but you don't find a culture where there wasn't some sense of we have made an offense and it has to be paid for by blood, that this is serious and we have to atone for it. And, and that is in our hearts that our conscience condemns us because we know there is a right and a wrong. And if there's a right and wrong, there is a source of that right and wrong which is above us that will judge us. And that is the place that we are in. That is the place that everyone is in. And that is the issue that this is pointing to. And blood must be offered. This whole passage is talking about the blood that must be offered. A sacrifice must be made. This is what we see. And he points back in the old covenant of how um, the covenant itself was established with blood, that when the Ten Commandments were given and the people said, we will do these things, Moses sprinkled blood on them. When the tabernacle was established, blood was sprinkled, blood was sprinkled on the priest. All of this to purify and say there has been a sacrifice covering this covenant, a payment has been made to purify this. And day after day, offerings were made of blood. There was sacrifice that was given and year after year of the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and sprinkle blood, showing the purification of the people and the, the need for something to be paid, and yet also the fact that what was being offered was not sufficient, wasn't perfect, wasn't going to make up for it. So why blood? Blood is life. Blood means that this is, this is living. This is the source of our life. And what we see is we, we, we recognize that we have been given life by God. We, ha we didn't make ourselves. We didn't create our own life. We, we, we can't just cause to come into existence. We recognize that life is a gift. Whenever there is loss, we recognize it's beyond our control. Life is something that is given to us as a gift from God and when he does so, he gives us command, be obedient, do this and you shall live. It's what's given to Adam is, you know, on the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. Do this and you will live is the promise that's made and we fail to do it. We rebel against him. We decide we, 
we really want to be in control of our own selves. We take this gift that is given, this life that is given to us, and rather than conforming to the law that God has given, we say, I want to be God, and I want to do things on my own terms. And rather than gratitude, we say, well, why didn't you give me this? Why didn't you make my life like that? And the payment is in this rebellion, having offended against the one who has given, is to return what has been gifted to us, that our rebellion demands blood. It means the life that has been given. And that is what is portrayed to us throughout the Old Covenant as, as blood is offered, as sacrifices are made, and as something written in the hearts of people throughout the world as offerings were made to appease whatever was up there. Because blood is also part of this covenant. This is from beginning in 15. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's talking about the covenant requires blood. Even the old covenant required blood. And he starts pointing to um, this pattern that is part of all Scripture. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. Now, that word will is the same word that's translated covenant. The understanding of a covenant is that it's a covenant, it's a testimony, it's a will. That's why you have an Old and New Testament, you have an Old and New Covenant. Those are the will. And so this covenant that's a will that he's pointing to, he's trying to draw out the principle that the, the inheritance comes to us um, when the death puts that will into effect. You know, last will and testament is when someone dies. Their life is gone. The blood has been shed in a sense. And so that's, that's the idea is that there's necessary of that. But it's also necessary to have blood for the covenants that are made otherwise. So the, the story of Abraham receiving the covenant of God, you'll remember that strange story where he's shown the stars and the promises made to him that more children will be given to him than stars that, are, that can be counted. And bulls and goats and birds are, are slain and spread apart as a sign of um, a covenant, and, and we, we think that's like we're trying to look for what that means, and what it means is it's pointing to ceremonies that took place. When a covenant was made, the one who obligated themselves to fulfill that covenant offered a sacrifice, walked between them, and said, if I fail to keep this covenant, may my blood be shed like these animals. Blood is shed to establish a covenant. That's why when the Covenant at Sinai, there's blood that's shed to symbolize if we fail to keep this, our blood is to be accounted. There's always this, this sense of a covenant is made, a promise is made, and it's established with blood. This is the blood of the covenant, he says. And so blood is necessary. It's life that is necessary, a sacrifice that is necessary. And so how is this given? The writer of Hebrews has been laying out the argument of how Jesus is a perfect priest, a better priest. We talked about how he's a priest of a different order, the order of Melchizedek, a superior priesthood. We've been looking at how he is a superior priest because of his perfection. He is without blemish. He's perfect. We've seen how he offers the sacrifice doing his ministry, not in the tabernacle made with hands, but in the heavens the very presence of God of which the tabernacle is a copy and a shadow and a type. 
It's, it's looking all these things, and here now is answering the question, what is the sacrifice that is made? For if he was a greater high priest, even going into the heavens, if he went with blood of goats and sheep, bulls, it's not enough. You are worth much more than a goat. Isn't that a good positive message for a Sunday? You are of much more value than that ox. In other words, their blood cannot make up for your sins. And as much as they, they showed the forgiveness, they also showed by having to be repeated, they were imperfect. They can't pay the price. And here's the other problem. Everyone is sinful. The priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself before he could offer a sacrifice for everyone else because he was a sinner as well. He's fallible. All of us have sinned. And there's a sense in which if I was to stand up and I would say, I'm going to offer my life on your behalf, it would be worthless because my blood is accounted to me. It couldn't make up for my own sins, much less anyone else's. So how is a sacrifice going to be offered that doesn't only pay for the sins of the giver, but for everyone else and that could be sufficient? And the answer is the blood of God's own son. He is without blemish. He has no sins to atone for. But more than that, he's infinite. That's why it says that he entered once and for all, not with blood of goats and calves, this is verse 12, but with his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It is the infinite value of God himself and God's own son that is able to pay for the sins of all of us. It's the infinite value of his blood and his life that is able to atone and make eternal redemption. He, he's not limited in who he could um, pay for because he is infinite. That's why we not only needed a human who could represent us and a man who could be a priest and stand before God on our behalf and represent us that we could have a connection with. We needed that human, but he, no mere human could offer an eternal, infinite sacrifice. But because he is God himself, the sacrifice that is given is of infinite value. This is wonderful encouragement to us. You know, what he's doing to kind of remind us is they are the readers of this originally. They're all tempted to go worship something else. They're tempted to return to things. And he is saying, don't return. This is better. Jesus is better than the, the, anything you have. His sacrifice is better. And it's a continual reminder that he is better. And we subtly have that same kind of temptation to say, you know, I could really justify myself if I worked harder. Thank you. If I worked harder and I got more, you know, a better place of work and everybody knew, I, you know, maybe I'm a jerk, but I'm so good at my work, it kind of makes up for it. Or, you know, sports is so great. If I do enough um, sacrifice enough and train hard enough, maybe I can show that I'm better than others. Or anything that if I sacrifice enough, if I work hard enough, if I make these sacrifices, I can prove that I'm worth something. I can prove my meaning. I can prove that I'm justified, that I'm a good person. And if I, you know, sacrifice and, and show that I'm more moral than anyone else, I can justify myself. We are tempted to do that. 
Even as believers, we're tempted to do that. And here is the message to us. His sacrifice is better. Christ is better because you have to sacrifice to obtain anything else, and they will never give. But Jesus has sacrificed himself for you. His blood is greater than any sacrifice that can be offered, and you're justified and forgiven and purified and atoned for and given your place because of the perfect blood that covers you who trust in him. What good news to know that we have this so that we have an eternal redemption, that we face a judgment through forgiveness because he has borne the sins of many. His coming a second time will not deal with sin. That's taken care of. He doesn't return to go to the cross again. You sin and you mess up and you make mistakes. Jesus doesn't say, man, there's a lot of this. I'm going to have to return and go to the cross and make up for the rest of it. It's taken care of. All sins are covered. And who are they covered for? For many. There's an intentionality to the sacrifice. There's an effectiveness to the sacrifice that it's not all. It's many. And who are those many? Those who trust in him. For it's in trusting in him that you enter into covenant. You're no longer in Adam, the covenant breaker. You're now in Christ, the covenant keeper. You are covered with his blood. When you are trusting in him, his sacrifice has sprinkled you clean and made you pure, and you are at peace with God. If you're trusting in him, you're in a covenant with him, and it is his blood, not your own, that will pay for sin. One of the things this comforts us and reminds us is his blood is an infinite sacrifice that covers all sin. Do you ever, when you're facing a lot of difficulty, when things are just piling up on you, when you're having one of those days followed by one of those days followed by one of those days, when you get over one thing just to face something else, whether it's physical, whether it's just friends, whether it's problems at work, whether it's just things falling apart when life is out of control, do you ever think God's making me pay? I know I'm guilty about this. I know I haven't done what I ought to do. I haven't prayed as much. I haven't, haven't done these things that I know I should do. And let me just say, I've, I've pastored long enough that if I ask anybody certain questions, you can just see the guilt well up because all of us know we could pray more. All of us know we could give more. All of us know we could do more. All of us know we could read more and know more and love more and try harder. And there's that sense of guilt because there's so many demands on us that when we start having difficulties and suffering and grieving, there's a temptation and a little voice whispering in my ear saying, you haven't done enough and God's calling you on it. You really should have done this and you wouldn't have to be paid. And all of that is a lie from hell and it smells like smoke. I don't know what Baptist preacher I stole that from, but my mom knows him. It's all a lie. It's paid for. The blood is infinite. God is not demanding you continue to pay. Now, we do stupid things and we face consequences for it. That's not guilt and punishment. We, we mess up and there's results of 
things that we've done, that's not God demanding sacrifice. God has demanded all the sacrifice he will ever demand from the son and the blood that was shed on the cross. So whatever you're going through, there is suffering and that is real and there are difficulties and there is not fairness in the way difficulties and pain and suffering is distributed. There is just not, that's, life's not fair and some of you go through some incredibly difficult things. But don't for a minute believe that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, that God is making you pay more. You are forgiven in him. It is an eternal redemption. That means it's not eternal plus you putting a little more in the offering plate. It's not eternal plus you helping out a little bit more. It's eternal and things are covered. You will never be required to pay for it. Think about it. What could you possibly add to the blood of Christ? Does it add anything that's not more valuable than that? One final thing. You know, the value of something we don't always see. Uh, do, you, do you ever, like, see those news stories of something that comes up for auction and it sells for an amazing amount and you're just, like, staggered, like, who would pay this? Or, or Robin, okay, Robin and I watch Antiques Roadshow and we see a piece of junk and it's worth almost $100,000? Who? There, there's something about the value that's revealed by the price that is paid. You know, it doesn't surprise me when a guitar costs $50,000, but you know, to the uninitiated, that's a lot of money. As you leave, think of the price God paid for you. Think of his love for you that paid an infinite price that made the angels go, that much? You love them that much? They're that valuable to you? Whatever you're going through, know that there is a God who wants to make a covenant with you through trusting in him who has looked at you and said, bringing you back to me is worth the price of all that I have, the blood of my own dear son. Now unto him who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine be honor and glory and power forever. Amen. Would you please stand and let us stay what we believe for the words of the Apostles' Creed.